Welcome and thank you for joining the Disruptive Dialogue Experience, where we hope to bring people together like yourself with different perspectives to make change in our communities, cities, and our nation. Today we have joining us, Jesse Mabry. Jesse is amazing. I have gotten the chance to get to know her and she possesses a care for others, a strength that inspires, and a heart that wants to make you just wanna see her win. And I'm so excited to have her today. She's a woman of faith and has over 13 years of experience in mentoring female corrections, female correction residents, hospice patients, recovering addicts, and expectant mothers who are incarcerated. Her passion is helping others get through trauma in spite of their situations as she continues to do the same for herself. Today, I'm super excited to have Jesse. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Welcome. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for inviting me. And I always well, like to say that my motto is in spite of. <laughs> in spite of. What do you mean by in spite of? What do you mean by in spite of? Tell, tell the, the people. When I was 33 years of age, my life just started to unravel. I had received a diagnosis, a mental health diagnosis. Now, keep in mind, this is in the 90s. In fact, you might as well say the early 90s, 91, 92. Uh, for a young black woman, the last thing you want is a diagnosis of mental health. You can't, I couldn't tell my family because they expected me to be the one that always fixed everything, always had it all together. On the outside, I looked like somebody who had it all together. I had a great job, beautiful child, my own place, my own car, everything. But inside, I was a mess. I was in a marriage that uh, was just violent. I'd never been exposed to that type of environment before. The next thing you know, one night I ran away from home. My daughter was at my mom's, so she was safe. And I decided I was going to leave. Mm. I was snowing very hard. One thing led to another. And I ended up killing a friend of the family. Oh, wow. Um, I like to say that within three seconds, my life changed and I changed the course of lives of two families. Wow. And I take full responsibility for it even today. When all was said and done, I ended up with a sentence of 15 to life with a three-year gun specification. My life changed forever that day. I had never been exposed to jail or anything of that nature. And here I was now in a maximum security prison for women. So someone came to visit me in what we call admissions in prison. And she was a lifer and they know when lifers are coming in. And when she came in, she said to me, you have two options. You know, you can do the time or the time can do you. Mm. When she said that to me, and I was the only woman out of 240 women in admissions that was doing a life sentence. And I made the decision, I was gonna do the time. So I made it my life's mission from that moment forward as I went into the max unit that everything I did it was going to count. It was going to matter. A lot of my control had been stripped from me, but what I still had control of is how I lived my life. It didn't matter where I was. So in spite of where I was, I was going to do what I needed to do. That's why I say in spite of. And from that moment forward, I had to walk it out. Because one thing about prison, once you enter, whatever image you give, that's the image you keep. So I had to stay with it and, and go hard. That's what I did. In spite of. I love that. You know, I, I didn't think of how deep your story goes into in spite of, but your story goes pretty deep. And it's like you said, 
um, in a matter of minutes, you changed two families' lives forever. Um, tell us about how your family life was at that time with uh, your daughter and um, your children. How many children do you have? I have one child. One she child. was 11 years old when I left. Mm -hmm. And uh, our relationship was always very tight. As, as I just mentioned, she was my only child. And my mother and my daughter and I were like the three amigos. She was my, my mom was my only babysitter as I worked. So she had a room at my parents' home and she had a room in our home that she and I shared. So when all this happened, she, I gave my mother custody of my child, temporary custody of my child, so that she would have no problem getting permanent custody once I found out what my sentence was going to be. Her father was still a very much a part of her life up until the, he still is to this day. But my goal was to make sure that her transition was as easy as possible under the circumstance. She and I maintained that very strong bond through 27 years of incarceration because I neglected to mention that I did 27 years of incarceration. Um, my parents were very strong in my life during that entire time. And when they say it takes a village to raise a child, a village helped me raise my baby. And my parents made sure that I had all the decision-making power and everything else through my entire incarceration. There was not a day that I did not call her. And even when she became a mother herself, she's a mother of three children. I talked to her every single day and my grandchildren as well. So on their own personal phones. So our relationship was very strong when I went into prison and I, we maintained that I was going to do that by any means necessary. They had special visits where you could uh, visit with your children. They had, uh, if there were activities, I would send things home because I was, I've always been very crafty. I can sew, I can crochet, I can knit. So I would make things for and send them home. I would draw things and send them home because I draw as well. I would do whatever it took to keep us connected. What were some of the challenges you were going through prior to um, your incarceration? Were there challenges you were having in life that, that kind of led you to um, the decision that you made? The challenges I faced was the mental health diagnosis that I was keeping to myself. But when they say secrets keep you sick, I am the epitome of, of what a poster child should look like for that quote. Uh, also, I had uh, I decided that I wasn't going to take the medication they described because I could take care of myself. I self-medicated. I used drugs, you know, and um, also I had domestic violence. So those were the three challenges that I was dealing with. And let us not forget also being a black woman in, in the early 90s. That didn't help either. Yeah. So I was dealing with all of this at one time and nowhere to turn to ask for help. The trauma that you experienced, because that, that's what I hear is you, you had a lot of trauma um, in your life at that time. Um, what, do you, what do you think someone out there who's dealing with trauma right now, what, what would you like them to know who's dealing with trauma? The main thing I would like them to know, be they a male or a female, because you can all go through domestic violence. If you're in a domestic violence situation, ask for help, call a shelter. They're available now. They weren't so prevalent in my day, but they are now. They're very prevalent. Call that shelter. They will help you. They'll take you underground if they have to. Ask for help. Yeah. That is the most important thing I could tell them. And for you, not having any help, early 90s, Black woman, and going through all the challenges that you were facing, um, I'm sure you felt like you're on your own, that you had to try to figure this out on your own. Um, how did that truly affect your, your mindset and everything that you were doing? Well, as you just said, because I was a black woman, I have been raised to believe that you didn't go to 
uh, mental health, through mental health for things. That was a weakness. That was a sign of weakness. And I did not know how to figure this out on my own, but I knew I had to do it on my own because also this is right around the time of Rodney King and all of this. There was no way I could go to the police for help. If you call the police on a domestic violence situation, they would take the guy around the corner and then let him come back home. Mm -hmm. So you, you couldn't do that. They didn't even believe you half the time. You did something to him. That was their impression of things. So you just needed to suck it up and deal with it. I wasn't about to tell my family that I had a situation I couldn't handle. Because you also have to think about the men in your family. What might they do? I don't want them doing something that gets them in trouble. I've got to figure this out. But I'm telling people today, you don't have to figure this out by yourself. If you don't do anything else, go to a domestic violence shelter or go to a church. Go somewhere and ask somebody to help you. You know, Jesse, I, I listened to your story and I can't help but think about how many people out there have the similar story and they find themselves in situations where trauma is just just killing them. Um, and I'm sure in the 27 years that you spent in prison, you saw many ladies with similar stories. Um, tell us how that impacted you by seeing that you weren't alone in this situation. Learning that my situation was not unique was the epiphany that I needed in my life. And uh, on top of realizing that by the women around me whose cases were horrific compared to mine, I realized that I had to do something. And my mom really empowered me because one day on the phone, she apologized to me and she said, I wanna, I wanna tell you that I'm sorry. And I said, for what? She said, because I should have admitted to you that I was, uh, had the same diagnosis that you received because they had told me that it was uh, generational. And I, mm-hmm. I'm like, nobody in my family has this. I'm not going to share this with anybody. She said, had I told you, you could have dealt with this better. And that's when I knew I had to make a difference with somebody else's child. Because keep in mind, I was now at this point, I'm 34. Most of the women I was in prison with were younger than me. Some as young as 17 years of age. Mm. Because at that time, if you were 16, 17, you came to the adult prison. There was no unit for you or anything else. You just came into the max pod, everything else. But these women were anywhere from 17 to 30 years of age. And I'm looking at them like, if this was my child, what would I want somebody to do? And that's when I realized what I had to do with my time. That's good. So speaking of your time, uh, share a little bit with the the people who are listening, um, how you entered your mindset then, how you tra- you know transition into it? Um, basically, you had to get comfortable within it, and you know some of the ups and downs that you faced while you're in prison. I guess I want to start by saying that in prison, the worst thing you can do is get comfortable. But what I had to do was accept the fact that I, this was going to be my home, and I didn't know how long it was going to be my home. That was hard for a lot of women to say that that was their home, but that was my home. And I had to make the best of my neighborhood. So I had to start by determining what was it that I could do. Now, all of this is, as you mentioned, I'm a woman of faith. So all of this was God was creating a path for me is what he was doing. And the very first thing out the gate, most people, as soon as they come into the prison I was in, you start out in the kitchen. Well, what they did was put me on paper as being in the kitchen, but what I was was the unit clerk for the max unit. And I was actually dealing with a sensitive paperwork of women who were going in and out of the hole, 
for various reasons or whatever. And I had that job for two years. That was my first two years. In that time frame, what I did was I began to do the programs that I needed to do, even though I was uncomfortable going into them. And that was domestic violence. I went into uh, the mental health department, even though I didn't trust them at all because I hadn't been raised to trust them. And I did whatever I had to do to keep my sanity because there were a lot of things I was seeing every day that were incredible, you know? And I still had to navigate through that and maintain who I was. I made a pact with myself and with my God that I was going to maintain my identity no matter what, in spite of it. Yeah. And you know, that identity that you're talking about while you're in prison is gonna get challenged by people who can't see themselves from the perspective you see yourself. Um, how did you overcome some of the challenges from those who are in your neighborhood? Those that were in my neighborhood, uh, for the most part, just treated me with respect because I just stayed true to who I was. And they treated me with respect. And most importantly, I treated them with respect. So it was easy to receive it in return. Mm -hmm. uh, even though I didn't look older than, than they were, they real, once they realized that I was, they just treated me with, with reverence. And I treated them as though they were my daughters or my nieces or my, my cousins or I treated them accordingly. It didn't matter to me whether you had a mental health issue. It didn't matter to me whether you were white, black or whatever. I treated them all the same and they treated me accordingly. And so did the staff. So did the staff. Speaking of staff and prison itself, what were some of the challenges of just being in there um, as a person that has limited resources and from the staff and from the prison system itself? What are some of the, the challenges you face? Some of the challenges that I faced, one was um, ageism. At this time, in, when I was in prison, at the beginning of my uh, incarceration, it was predominantly male staff. So they assumed that, that I was much younger. So they would try to approach me in, in the way that they approached the younger women. So once I was able to get them to understand through the way I spoke back to them that I was an older woman. Then they stayed away from me, so to speak. Some would challenge me as a black woman because I was black. Because again, not only were uh, they predominantly male, but there was a lot of nepotism at that time. And these were family members in a predominantly white area. So they would try me then once they realized that there was nowhere to go with it and that I actually understood the chain of command and would use it because how can you really threaten someone that's got a life jail? You can't really. And I realized that even though some of my counterparts didn't realize that I did, I realized that you can't scare me. I've been frightened to death and in spite of it all, I'm still standing. So I'm going to keep standing. I'm going to give you your respect as an authority figure, but I need you to give me mine as a woman. You know, Jesse, 27 years, seven years, two years, one year is a lot of time in prison. Amen. Seven years in prison um, as a woman who has never been involved with the justice system before. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of times you're wondering why. What kept you so motivated to continue to give back to everybody that was in there and also clearly see that you're working toward building yourself and your future. What, what kept you on that line? The main thing that kept me was 
the way I was raised and what I wanted my daughter to see. Because I was still a mom. I was still somebody's daughter. I was still somebody's sister. So I still had a responsibility to the outside, even though I wasn't out there. I had a responsibility and I had to stand up, man up, and walk it out because that's the way I was raised to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's how I knew to survive. So in spite of it all, I was going to do what I needed to do to be the woman that I was as I found myself because I needed to find myself. I desperately needed to find myself. And I never had, I never had time to breathe. So I didn't have time to find me. What do you mean by find yourself? I had to find out who I was, what my boundaries were. I didn't even know as articulate and intelligent as I was, I did not know what boundaries meant. I had no understanding of it until I went into a domestic violence class. So I had to figure out what are my boundaries because they had obviously been crossed multiple times. I wouldn't have been in the position I was in that day. So I had to find out who I was, what my boundaries were, what made me tick and what needed to be tweaked because a whole lot needed to be tweaked. There were things that were obviously not working for me and I needed to figure out what they were and fix them because I had a child who was a young black woman whom I had to be an example for regardless of what my address was. Mm. I didn't lie to my child about where I was. She didn't lie to her friends about where her mother was. My parents and my sisters and brothers didn't lie about where their sister was or their daughter was. We kept it real all the way through. So I didn't have anything to look back at and hide from. And I, I wanted to teach her that she didn't have to either. How did that empower you, though, and her? I mean, you're saying I had to keep it real. I'm telling everybody there's, you know, you weren't worried about stigmas. You weren't worried about anything. How did that keep you empowered in that situation by just telling the truth and being who you are and knowing your identity? Keep in mind, I came up in the 70s. So this was the bra burning women's liberation black power, you know, to be young, gifted and black era. So that's what we were all about. That was our mantra. We were just going to be inexcusably us because what difference did it make? It's not, I'm dark skinned. So it's not like, you're not going to know I'm a black woman. <laughs> so I might as well just be that black woman. Now I might make you mad that I speak. I enunciate my words properly, as my mother said, because people would always say, why do you talk so white? I don't talk white. I speak correctly. Mm -hmm. I enunciate my words correctly. I went to school and I listened to what they told me and how they told me to enunciate my words. That's what I do. So I had to live up to everything. I had to live up to the hype. Let me just put it like that. I had to live up to the hype. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you say, like, there's so many things that we have to challenge in ourselves. One of the things that a lot of the a lot of Blacks, um, people of color need to challenge in themselves is how we speak. Um, you know, I know the way I speak is not the way I spoke 30 years ago, but the difference is I want to speak clearly. I think it's important to speak clearly so people can understand what you're saying. The other part of me is, um, you know, I used to talk to my grandmother a certain type of way, and then I would talk to my boys another way. And I felt like mm -hmm. I was being fake because I was over here speaking to my grandmother one way and speaking to my boys another. And so I had to, um, figure out what am I going to do? So to keep it real, I just started talking to everybody like I talked to my grandmother. And so, you know, certain things we have to just get over just so we can move ahead in life because there's so many things that will try to hold us back. And so um, it's so re refreshing to hear that none of these things held you back, but you felt empowered and you kept moving forward and you kept moving forward. Um, did you always have hold on to hope that you would get out one day? 
Oh, I knew I would get out one day. I knew I would. You know, uh, I was what they called a baby life. I had the minimum life sentence that you can have with a 15 to life. And it was just a matter of the jury choosing what they chose. But nobody disputed the fact that there was never a case where this was in the commission of a robbery or anything like that. They knew something happened between me and that man in that moment that made me raise a gun. You see what I'm saying? So I knew I would get out one day. The question was when. And I had to get ready so that I would, I had to stay ready. I had to stay ready. So I didn't have to get ready. So I just, just didn't know when it would be, but I knew I had to make it work. Yeah. One of my favorite sayings, stay ready. So you don't have to get ready. That's right. You know, and that's right. And I I mean, those are things I learned in prison, ironically, Mm -hmm. of all places, I actually realized who I was in prison, in prison. I learned that. Yeah. And regardless of where I was, my child did not become a statistic. She was a young woman. She owned her own home in her 20s. She still owns that home today. She raised her three children, single mother. She's educated and she owns her own business. And guess what? My grandchildren are college graduates. Well, the baby's on her way into college. So all this with a mother who was incarcerated for 27 years of her life. So we are not statistics. We are not statistics. We weren't going to be statistics. My baby wasn't going to be one for sure. I told God, if you let me, I'll walk it out right in here. If you keep my baby safe. When she, now don't get me wrong. She was not perfect. She did things and she did something that almost landed her in jail. And I told her, if you come to prison, I promise you, I'm going to get to you. And I'm not going to tell you the rest of what I said. So (laughs) the point is she knew it was going to be a problem if she showed up in in Mary's house, as we call, you know, so. She got herself together, so she wasn't perfect by any means. Now, I'm going to talk but about she... your transition here in a second, but I, I do want to address one of the things that you you shared, and I love the way you shared it. My neighbors, my neighborhood. Um, why did you call prison your neighbors and your neighborhood? Because that's what they were. We had in a prison setting, or at least in the prison setting I was in, there were different buildings, so each building had a name. So I lived in the art complex and in the art complex, that's where the Max girls were. We got to do everything first. And it was like a parting of the Red Sea when we came through, you know, but I, I might be coming past your neighborhood, your, your complex or whatever. So everybody had a group of people in it that stood for a certain thing. And we kept our area very nice. In fact, we had the best living accommodations on a compound, you know, so that was my neighborhood. That was my neck of the woods. That's where I was living at. I think when you and call that's how someone, I saw them. They, they, this was my family. This was my dysfunctional family for many, many years. I love those women to death to this day. They're, there's a lot of great people in prison, and most of them are not career criminals. Most of them are doctors, lawyers, nurses, psychologists, everything else, uh, ex police officers, ex correctional officers. They're all sitting in there, and they're they're professionals from different worlds, electricians, everything. You name it, they're there. They were my neighbors. And I love that because it sounds like a restoration of dignity and not just we're more than just, you know, inmates or people who are incarcerated. We're neighbors. We're still people. We still have a mindset that um, a mind that's going to be free and we can keep our mind free. Our bodies may be incarcerated, but our minds can remain free. So I I love that that idea of neighbor and neighborhood. Um, I wish that more prisons had that mindset. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it helped out a lot when when challenges or, you know, 
uh, fights or stuff wanting to break out when you can really begin to look at somebody differently. Of course, all prisons are going to have their problems, but mm-hmm. um, I think that would help with restoring dignity. Um, so after all the time that you spent and now you, you get the word that you're about to get out, tell us about what the, the highs of, of hearing that and then some of the challenges you may have, might have faced um, in your transition and then the blessing um, of, of having people there for your transition. Um, I went through six parole hearings and all six of my parole hearings were two to three years apart. They never gave me more than a three-year flop. And every single one my parents went to until they passed away. The last one, my daughter went to by herself. Oh, wow. And just her and the attorney, she didn't want anyone else to go with her. And um, when you get when you get your recommendation of freedom, which I got a unanimous recommendation of freedom, you still have to wait for the victim's uh, hearing and everything else. If the victim's uh, family wants to oppose you. So when they got to the full what we call the full panel hearing, um, my daughter was there with the attorney and my victim's family was represented as well. And within a matter of minutes, they solidified my freedom. So I still had to wait an additional 60 days because I was going to another state. Otherwise I would have been out 30 days later. Mm-hmm. I knew the parole board at this point and my child knew them all very well too. Um, for me, the transition now became a case of, I was leaving the state I had been in because I, I call the whole compound the state of the state I had been in for 27 years and going to a new state, a state that I that was not the state I left 27 years before. Technology was different. The streets looked different. Everything was different. And I had to get ready for it. So those last, actually, I'll be honest with you, my last year, because leading up to every board, I prepared myself to go. I, had, I knew what I was gonna do when I got out, where I was gonna go to get this, where I was gonna go to get that. So when I finally got it, it's like, uh-oh, I really have to do this now. <laughs> wait, wait a minute, time out, time out. There was no room for time out though. So now the transition is back into my family unit, which as I, as I mentioned to you, my daughter and I were so bonded that I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't worried about the mom with my grandchildren because we were very close. Mom, it was gonna be a different world because my mom and dad weren't there. And I told you my mom was my best friend. Mm-hmm. So I had just lost her three years before. So now I was walking out into an incredibly different world. Yeah. So, but you had you had somebody there for you in that transition. Talk about that a little bit. In my transition, I, I was I feel so blessed. And I don't want anybody to think that my prison life was easy. It was not. You're dealing with being demeaned and degraded every single day, you know. But my transition was helped by uh, the Department of Supervision helped me. They helped me to transition knowing I was going to another state. They connected me with community supervision here where I was actually doing Zoom uh, sessions with community supervision here. So they, they were helping to uh, get me connected. Then I also have, I have five sisters and brothers. So now they're all out there like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. My daughter is telling everybody, okay, put on the brakes because this is what I'm gonna do. And then you guys can follow in line after that. Nobody was allowed to come and get me except her and my baby granddaughter. And uh, who I call her a baby, but she was 16 at this time. So, you know, they came to get me and uh, we stopped up to see two of my uh, siblings who live in Ohio. 
Now, this is during COVID, so I had to be very careful. One of my, there are three of them that live in Ohio. I could not see the third one because she has a lung disease. So I couldn't go anywhere near to keep her safe. And uh, because I got over COVID uh, three days before I was released. Oh, wow. That was my second bout of COVID. Um, I saw them for a couple of hours, got my driver's, not my driver's license, my uh, state ID in Ohio. Within 20 minutes of me getting out, I was getting my state ID, thanks to my unit manager who set it up for me to get it right there uh, in that county that I was in. And we went to my brother and sister's house, spent time with them, and then we were on the road. Within 12 hours of my release, I was in Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. So <clears throat> already set up with community supervision here. And um, I'd, I met my PO within like three hours. And went from there, I hit the ground running and I haven't stopped since. But my, my support system was all of my siblings and the Department of Corrections on both sides. I, I got to give them their props. They helped me tremendously before I even left the prison setting. Good. I wish everybody can get that kind of support. And uh, when they're transitioning, we have tons of stories where people either didn't get the support or didn't utilize the support that was necessary to transition out of prison to hit the ground running. And so that was, that's a, a great thing that you were able to experience. Um, there's only a, a couple other questions I have, but I don't want to get too deep into um, what you do now. Actually, I do want to get a little bit deep into what you have. And I'm hopeful that you could come back for our grand finale uh, shows that we're going to have to talk about some of the things that you see that can help women in incarceration and through their transitions and ways to help them and things that you're doing currently to to be involved with that. What I want to talk about now is you hit the ground running, but you're coming from Ohio to Georgia, brand new place and everything. Talk about your mindset of being um, willing and desirable to help other people in spite of everything that you're going through, that in spite of thing. Why do in you have that, that passion to, to help and to and some of the things that you've been able to do. That all goes back to my incarceration. While I was incarcerated, I started out as, um, I told you as a unit uh, clerk, but I was also working with, what they would have me do is they would have me, uh, They were we only lived in two man rooms. So they would have me go into a room with a, a young lady that had mental health issues that was uh, max, max status that people couldn't live with. But I don't know why I just had a way of living with them that they were they were peaceful. When they came in the room, they felt peace, and that became my trademark. So they would always take people who were problem people or mental health issues, and I would be their roommates a lot of time. And um, I realized that that was my calling. That I, I don't want to say I was helping people, but my spirit gelled with theirs and they would able even if they were acting up if I walked around them they would calm down I would say come on let's go to the room or something like that and um, that led me into at this point I'm now moving to a minimum security prison and when I got there I was able to because I was a hairstylist hairstylists are like bartenders so you spend a lot of time with people you get to know what their pains are and everything because they'll talk to you and the unit decided that when pregnant women would come in, the facility that was I was at housed all the pregnant women. And they wanted me to, they would call me to the unit, tell me about a young lady, and then tell me that uh, they're going to have her come meet me one-on-one. -on -one. I was also certified through American Red Cross to work with uh, HIV and AIDS awareness. 
we taught it all over the prison. There were six of us that taught it all over the prison. So they knew that I was very uh, willing to keep sensitive information and deal with people one-on-one. So now I was not only dealing with the woman who was HIV positive, I would also deal with pregnant women as well because it's very hard to adjust to prison. So it became my function to help people adjust, to validate their feelings and to give them some tools to cope, you know? And that became my skill. So I ended up being one of the seven women that were trained to become a Stephen minister. And we were the first female women, first females that were incarcerated to be certified as Stephen ministers. The seven of us were. And I maintained that status as a Stephen minister until I left prison. My function was to deal with the pregnant women. I've been with them as they miscarried everything else. Um, I also would deal with the women as they crossed over. So uh, that was such a humbling experience and an honor and I would be with them. We would do it 24 hours a day. They were never alone until they passed. And we would meet their families at the because I've worked and lived at the hospital, the prison hospital. We would meet their families and we would assure them that they, if they were not there when that young, that I wouldn't want to say a young woman, but some of them were quite young. If they were not there when that woman dies, she would not be alone. And she was not. So I, there were a lot of sisters that I was with when they crossed over, you know, and that was my volunteer job for 14 years. So as I transitioned out, I transitioned out with a skill set. And on top of that, I'm also a certified dog handler. My job was to, I was trained to teach dogs to work with the blind. So I worked for pilot dog uh, is what it's called. And we would get them at five weeks old, keep them until they were at least 16, 17 months. Then they would go off to puppy college where they would learn how to uh, let their owner know that the street light was changing or whatever, things like that. But we taught them everything, all their social skills up to that point and all their basic skills. So that was my job also. I would do that. I also, I did hair and did dogs all at the same time. The dog lived with me. He would be with the babysitter while I was at work. So I had all these skills where all I was doing was taking care of somebody, <laughs> you know? So when I came out, I came out with a skill set. And that, that skill set led you to now be able to help other ladies, correct? That skill set led me to, to know my purpose. Okay. My purpose, but I had to stand still to learn it. And the only way God to get, could get me to stand still was to put me where he put me. You know, so I had to stand still. And the only thing I could deal with was me and figure out what I was supposed to be doing in life. And God let me know what I was supposed to be doing. So that's what I did. So by the time I left prison, it, I was all about women being empowered, feeling safe, and have some tools in their toolbox to work with by any means necessary in spite of, in spite of, it did not matter to me what your circumstances were. And again, I was a poster child for that. You might as well just put me on a poster and say, in spite of, it does not matter. You can't tell me what you're going through because no matter what, I'm going to tell you how you can work this out. It can work out. You just have to be honest with yourself. I'm not gonna sit up and pretend that I was not in prison. I'm not gonna broadcast it, but I'm not gonna pretend I wasn't in prison. And I'm going to tell you that because I was in prison does not determine who I am. It just tells you where I was. Exactly. Tells you your location. So now that you've been out, you're in Atlanta, you've acclimated to Atlanta. What are some of the things that you, you're doing now? And what are some of the things that, um, some of the certifications you've received since you've been out? Um, since I've been out, I've received, um, I'm a certified peer specialist, mental health. What is that? I'm a forensic peer mentor. 
Um, I also, I'm, I can facilitate WAM, which is a whole health action management. And I've actually been, I've volunteered with organizations, nonprofit organizations for women. Uh, women are coming out of domestic violence situations, uh, incarceration, et cetera. I have also uh, worked with uh, organizations that deal with families and children and still do it right now. And also what else have I done? Good Lord. I'll just throw what a little plug in there. You are a trainer facilitator for Redemption and Advancement <laughs> Alliance now. And I so appreciate you being able to support <laughs> the work that we do as a trainer and someone who sees the value in the curriculum that you train to the ladies um, who are incarcerated. So thank you for that. And thank you for that plug, sir. I was, uh, I'm glad you took that over for me because I could never have said it the way you do. Yeah. And that's a bomb organization to be a part of, by the way. I, I, it's an honor to be a part of that organization. Yeah. It well, truly is. Well, Jesse, you know, it's an honor to know you and all that you are. You are, you never allowed um, your circumstances and in spite of your cir circumstances, you you knew you were so much more, your identity was so much more than your zip code, your location and everything else. And I wanna say thank you also for kicking off this um, disruptive dialogue where we have um, the ladies first and you are a part of that ladies first and, um, and your story is so powerful. And when you come back, I can't wait to hear your perspective of how we can help ladies um, who are incarcerated um, to have that type of identity, to have that kind of passion, to understand that there's so much more than their history and their past and the decisions they make. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you all for joining us for this, this conversation of Disrupted Dialogue. I hope that you join us next week, same time, same place. And uh, again, Jesse, thank you for everything. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to put the ladies first. I appreciate it. And I look forward to coming back. Thank you. Well, check us out on uh, our social media pages, as well as follow us on our podcast uh, station. Thank you all again for coming, and we'll see you next week.